We're in Acts 15. We're going to, I haven't done a PowerPoint. We're just going to follow it through the scripture on the screen. We're going to read from verses 1 to 21. Um, I'm going to read a few verses and explain them to you because this is an incredibly important passage, which is why I didn't want us to skip it in terms of doing a preach on something else. Um, the reality is, I'll explain this as we go on, if this meeting that we're about to read about didn't happen, we probably wouldn't be here today. Um, it's that pivotable. Uh, pivotable? <laughs> it's that important. It's that pivotal. <laughs> and uh, it kind of come, that's the word, uh, pivotal, thank you. <laughs> it's my English teacher. Um, and it comes kind of roughly halfway through the book of Acts. And to some extent, depending what lens you want to read the book of Acts from, is, uh, uh, is one of the whole points that Luke, the author of Acts, is making in terms of the spread of the gospel. So let's get into it. And we're going to pause, give background, read a bit more. And then there's more background because it's uh, important to build the picture um, and remind ourselves of things that have already happened, we've already looked at, but now affect this. So verse 1, I don't know if we're on the same versions here. No, we're not, but that doesn't matter. Um, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, the new believers in Jesus, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Pause. Uh, Let's remind ourselves of Antioch um, and what was happening in Antioch. So we read about Antioch first in... Uh, Acts 11, I think, end of Acts 10 into Acts 11. Um, And there was a persecution of Stephen, which happened back in Acts 7 and into Acts 8. And it says there that people were believers, were scattered from Jerusalem, and some went down to Antioch and started teaching about Jesus. And no one knows who they were. Um, Antioch was a church which got started by people running away from persecution got started by refugees that's relevant isn't it so amidst and we've got stories we've heard them in terms of our work in the Middle East there are amazing things that God is doing in the middle of the bloodshed and the war and the horrors Um, the gospel is spreading there are new communities of believers uh, across Turkey and across other places because of things like this um, and this was persecution. In the Middle East, it's war. Uh, but God uses it to, to spread the news about Jesus. And that's what happened here. So in Antioch, it wasn't uh, one of the apostles that went there. Um, and it was just believers scattered. And then it says, and this is really important, some of them started sharing the gospel about Jesus to Greeks, who would have been non-Jews. And, and they believed. And they wouldn't have been circumcised. That's the point. So some people, don't know who they are, come from Judea in our passage to Antioch and say, great that you believe in Jesus, he is the Messiah, but you must be circumcised because Jesus was Jewish. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophets who were Jewish. They said he was going to come. We've got the law, we've got our customs. So if you're going to believe in Jesus and his teaching, then you need to be circumcised. So some of this is what, we look, what Jonathan looked at when we talked from Acts 10. And we'll come back to that in a moment. So with me so far? So that's why Antioch's important. So Antioch was a church started by people on the run, um, and then non-Jews became believers. The church had a mix of Jews and non-Jews um, and became a church that sent out Paul and Barnabas, a really significant church. And here we're reading about it again because some people came 
and said, no, we need to do this properly. <coughs> this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some of the other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Pause again. So Paul and Barnabas ended up in Antioch. You read about how that happened earlier in Acts, um, where Barnabas went to get Paul to bring him to this new church in Antioch to help teach them. And Paul is now going with Barnabas to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is still seen as the center. That's where Jesus came to. And even though there's been persecution, some of the apostles are still based in Jerusalem. So Paul and Barnabas are saying to these people who have come down and said, you must have the law, you must be circumcised. Paul, being Jewish, would understand why, but he says, no, (laughs) this is wrong. Um, And goes on to argue, as we'll see in a minute, it's faith in Jesus, that's all that matters. Um, So they have this argument, and they say, look, let's go and see the apostles. Let's go back to Jerusalem. This is really, really important. We'll go back. Um, What's important here, um, to remind ourselves of this, how did the church in Antioch get started? Through the persecution. Who was at the heart of the persecution? Paul. So you read when Stephen was stoned that Paul was standing there approving of it. It says Saul. um, He had more than one name, as lots of people in the East do. When I was in Sunday school, which was a long time ago, everything was in black and white, um, but we had Sunday schools. Um, We were taught that Paul was uh, Saul's Christian name which is rubbish. He was just one of his names. People in other countries have several names. Their family name, their formal name, their name that you call them by if you know them really well. And that's all it was with Saul and Paul. So uh, earlier in Acts, at the stoning of Stephen, it says, and Saul was standing there approving. So he's there persecuting the church because he doesn't believe it's from God. He believes they're breaking the customs of Moses, not just circumcision, but the temple. That was a big issue uh, at that persecution. And then Jesus appears to him powerfully. We read that story where Paul is on the road to persecute the church. Jesus appears to him. He's totally turned around, understands that this is from God, this new movement. He shouldn't persecute it. Jesus is the Messiah. Um, And he gets to go down to Antioch to strengthen the very church which was caused by his persecution. And now he's in an argument with people to protect the purity of the gospel and is going to Jerusalem. Isn't it amazing what Jesus does? Don't ever, ever look at a person or a circumstance and think this is too tough, too hard, there's nothing Jesus can't do. No, the hard, tough ones are exactly the ones that Jesus can do. We get wound up because we want it to be now. And we can think it's not happening, so Jesus isn't going to do it. The persecutor of the church, of this new movement, the one who is taking people's lives, is the very one who Jesus didn't only rescue, but then said, now make this message and make it known to the Gentiles. The very ones who you thought were breaking the law of Moses, the very ones who you thought are not allowed in the temple, the very things that you are passionate about, now these are the things I'm giving revelation to you to show you that these things are from me. Now, don't just repent, but you can get involved and you can take this message anywhere. Isn't Jesus incredible? I want a bit more of a response, come on. Isn't he all very quiet this morning, a little bit of rain and we all go quiet. Isn't Jesus phenomenal? That's what he does, and that's what he's doing in the Middle East today. You look at some of those 
the, the crimes that are committed in the hardest of hearts. And think, can the gospel really, really change something? Oh, yes, it can. Jesus can come to any heart of people of any faith and any background and rescue them and not only rescue them, but then say, come on, join in. Come with me, let's do this together. So that's Paul. It's just so helpful because it all comes together in this passage. God's plan of working from Jerusalem out to the ends of the, uh, of the earth. Okay, so verse 3. We're not going to spend this long on every verse. You'll be pleased to know. The church sent them on the way. They traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria. They told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported everything God had done through them. And that's all some of the stuff that we have been reading in Acts over the last few weeks. So they told them all of that story. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Pause there. So the Pharisees, um, we often don't like them. Is it lovely to hear Cassidy here? Hi, Cassidy. She's lovely. Such a sweet cry. We have to welcome Cassidy. Um, born last Friday. Didn't you love, so did you saw Michaela's message? Because I was supposed to move house last Friday, which didn't happen. Instead of moving house, we decided to have a baby. (laughs) Okay, that's planning for you. (laughs) Um, Where were we? Oh, yes, Jerusalem. So, the Pharisees had a hard time from Jesus um, because they were often the ones that were against him. Um, They then made up loads of extra laws on top of the book of Moses. They were hypocritical. Um, But the fact is, they were zealous for God. Yeah, they'd lost their way. Yes, they were hypocritical in it, but they were zealous for God. Um, Had we have been there before the time of Jesus, with our passion for God, we probably would have been among the Pharisees because they were the religious people. They were the ones who were trying to honor God. Not all of them were bad. These ones have become believers in Jesus. So these ones have said, yeah, we understand now. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that was promised. So these Pharisees are believing in Jesus. But like good Pharisees, keepers of the law, they're saying, if you're going to believe in Jesus, come on, the whole law then. We've got all these traditions, we've got all these customs which came from God. They're not just our ideas. Circumcision came from God. The laws, the holy days, the food, unclean, clean, it all came from God. And if you're wanting to please God by putting your faith in the Messiah, remember the rest of the story. And I know we, Jonathan touched on this a little bit when we were looking at Acts 10 in terms of the story of Peter, and Peter's about to feature in a minute, so we'll remind ourselves of that. But we must understand in many, many cultures, some of you are from these cultures, so you'll get it, traditions of how you worship God or how you stay clean are issues of conscience. It's not just a tradition here. This deeply, deeply matters. You can't believe in the Jewish Messiah and reject the rest of the Jewish truth because it came from God. That's what's at stake. This isn't just some law keepers being a bit of a pain. This is an issue of conscience. This is an issue of passion. This is an issue of you believe in Jesus? You want to please God? Yes. Wonderful. Well, this also pleases God, keeping the law. And although in our individualistic, um, and because in our churches we teach the doctrine of grace, These things are hard for us to comprehend. This is a huge, huge issue. Guys, you can be especially grateful because if this debate didn't go well, um, then part of joining Church Central would have been circumcision. 
Imagine that on the welcome card. <laughs> Are you or aren't you? <laughs> There'll be a class next week to teach about it. Sign up here. Now, seriously, we'd have been still celebrating holy days. There still would have been foods that we wouldn't touch, or wouldn't eat. We'd still worship Jesus, but we'd have had all of these laws because all that's going on is Jesus is the fulfillment of this. So if you're believing in the fulfillment, then you need to sign up to this as well. Um, and not just a head thing, but it was heart and it was passion. That's what's at stake. So verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know, some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from the lips the message of the gospel and belief. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. Pause there. That's Acts 10. So Peter, up on the roof, feeling hungry, he has a vision of food and God saying eat and it's all unclean and Peter says there's no way I'm going to eat this God. He thinks God's testing him. God it was you who told us for years and we were taught it from kids. Clean, unclean, don't touch it. It's a huge issue of conscience. When you look at other faiths in this city and think oh well, halal meat and all that stuff it's just weird. Why can't they? It's huge. If you believe that not touching something makes you unclean and unacceptable to God it's an issue of worship. It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of conscience. And it's so, so important that we understand this and honour this if we're wanting to reach other cultures in terms of how you will live. Um, and if people, if you were to go to other people's houses, I want them to come to yours. We have neighbours from other religions who won't come to our house because they assume, they're right, but they assume we drink. And alcohol is wrong, so they're not going to come near it. And you think, oh, come on, they need to be more inclusive, don't they? need to get over it. We're going to have an inclusive Britain and all of that. No, it's an issue of purity for them. It's an issue of conscience for them. It's an issue of uh, importance and what matters before God, something which this nation doesn't care about anymore. So we need to be careful if we're one of the ones running around being a little bit vocal about what other cultures need to do to integrate with us. Because actually what they're saying is, this is godless. And whilst I do not agree with those things... <laughs> And I'm not saying there aren't huge things that need looking at. If you're genuinely going to have a multi-ethnic society, it's not good enough just to turn around and say, well, they just need to change their customs. Because they're looking and saying, well, you're ungodless and unclean. Um, and the church hasn't done a very good job of communicating. It's only Jesus that makes you clean. We could unpack that one, but we can't. We need to finish the passage. So Peter gets this vision... Meanwhile, Cornelius, a centurion, a Gentile, and from the Romans who are oppressing them, he's a God-fearer. He gets a vision. An angel comes to him, says, send for Peter. Um, so after Peter has the vision, there's a knock on the door. It's people from Cornelius' house. Um, and they explain to him, Peter is still in turmoil. It's unclean, unclean for him to go to a Gentile's house. Hasn't had any food yet. It's unclean. Just go to the house and sit with them. He goes, he starts teaching, he hears the story uh, of the angel appearing and he begins to understand that's what the dream is. The dream wasn't about the food. The dream was about the Gentiles, which actually means the food because you're going to have to eat their, their food. But it's actually that God is saying, things that were unclean for you, I'm making clean. And as Peter is teaching, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter realizes God's accepted them. They're not circumcised. They don't know the law. They don't keep holy days. They eat unclean food. And yet the Holy Spirit, God himself, is taking up residence in them. This is now a temple. 
what we'd have thought would be what he'd have thought would be a dirty, unclean temple, because God's now taking up residence. They're speaking in tongues and worshiping. God has accepted them. God has made a choice. What Peter does in this debate is really clever. He's saying to the Pharisees, You're passionate for God? Well, God's already made the choice. He's already done this. He's already chosen the Gentiles. So we're debating this. Guys, there's no debate. That's what Peter is saying. And I was there. And in Acts 11, you read that he went back to Jerusalem and told them all of this. So they'll remember this. I was here, remember? I came back after Cornelius. I told you what the Holy Spirit had done. Let's keep going. Um, So Peter still, verse 9, he did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. See the cleanliness thing? purified their hearts you're talking about circumcision and that making them pure you're talking about their their identity if they're going to be the people of God they need to follow the law God's done it he's purified their hearts the law is outward it's the heart that we obey the law hoping it will make us clean on the inside it doesn't God went straight to the hearts of these Gentiles and made them pure so you want purity God's done it because he sent their spirit on them Jesus' death made them pure now then, why do you try to test God? By putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to hear. This is brilliant from Peter. Such humility. It's interesting, you know, we can often, when we're fighting about things or arguing about things we're passionate with, fall into hypocrisy um, and start saying, well, they need to do this, forgetting that we've never actually done it either. And when we start judging what's right or wrong, and not just religious stuff, faith stuff, but even just with other people at work sometimes. Oh, I hate it when they do that. I hate it when they gossip behind people's backs. Excuse me? You, isn't that what you're just... I mean, how blind we can be to the very things that are out of passion. Peter sees that and says, listen, we're going to ask them to obey the law? We've not managed it. We, as in me, Peter, and you and the generation before us, and our forefathers. And one of the reasons we've got all these books of the prophets is because they had to come and say, you're not obeying the law. And so now, this new work of God with the Gentiles, we're going to give them the law? Who are we to do that? We didn't keep it. It's brilliant from Peter. Seeing right the way through the fact that they couldn't obey the law, so why should we couldn't obey the law? Why should we ask them to do it? Verse 11. No, we believe it's through the grace of of our Lord Jesus that we're saved just as they are that's what this is about 500 years this year <clears throat> is the anniversary of Martin Luther and what we call the Reformation for those of you who know your history um, and he had to fight for this again not so much it wasn't over circumcision but overall what the church then which was the Catholic church had added to the gospel in terms of indulgences and paying for things that could hopefully secure uh, approval with God and Martin Luther, on reading scripture, came to say, why are we doing this? And came to see, um, wasn't, he doesn't quote this passage, talks a lot about Romans, but come to see that through things like this, hang on, we've had this fight before. It's grace alone. It's faith alone. You don't add anything. The scandal of the gospel is that God himself died in our place, and that fulfills the law. So there's nothing you can add. And we could do a big whoop for that, because that should make you very, very happy. We'll come back to that. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling them about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. 
So Paul and Barnabas, I'll start talking about their mission trips um, and all the miracles they have seen. And again, for them, it's a sign that God's doing this. These miracles are from God. And if he's doing miracles among the Gentiles, then, then God's receiving the Gentiles. When they finished, James spoke up. Seems that he's one of the leaders at this point. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, he's now quoting Amos 9. One of the prophets in the Old Testament. After this, I'll return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek, seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things known from long ago. So James is saying, hang on, the prophets talked about this. So Peter says, God's done this. Paul and Barnabas say, look, and he's done all of this. And James stands up and says, hang on, the prophets talked about this. We're wanting, to, we're wanting to go back to Scripture, the law, but actually the, the, the prophets, our Scriptures, point to a day coming when even the Gentiles will believe. James says this, It's my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Thank you, James, so much. Do I hear an amen, brothers? Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. We'll stop there. And then the story goes on. So they put that in a letter. Um, Paul and Barnabas go back with two prophets. Um, It it says that they are prophets. Send them back with a letter to Antioch and say, look, this is the news. This is what the brothers in Jerusalem... And the letter says it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. So what we've just read, even though the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned, they were aware of the presence of God with them. And this whole debate was happening before God. It's an amazing story. Um, Just to say that last bit, um, so many cultural things here. um, You think, hang on, if it's grace alone, why are they still talking about food? Um, Sexual immorality we get. We can think, yeah, let's, let's not do that one. But what about some of the food? Why are they still doing that? Because it's an issue of conscience. You see, they say the law of Moses has been preached in every city. So if people say they're believing in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, but they're then going to invite people into their homes and eat food which Jews wouldn't eat, the witness to the surrounding community is confusing. Hang on, I thought you were becoming a Jew because you're believing in the Jewish Messiah, but you're not eating their food. So it harms the witness of the gospel. Circumcision obviously is more private. You're not going to know whether someone's been circumcised or not. But if you're invited into their home and you eat with it, or you go to their home and you eat their food and then talk about Jesus the Messiah and you've put your faith in him, so hang on, he was a Jewish Messiah. This is what the Gentiles would think before they believed. But you're not eating that food. And food's really, really important in the East. So it would have sent a confusing message. And it would have offended the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus and caused them more of a stumbling block because they'd be saying, you're now believing in this Jesus who you say is a Jewish Messiah, but you're not eating Jewish food, so you're a fraud. You clearly do not believe. Have you followed me? And issues of conscience, Paul writes about this in Romans over food and in Corinthians, are huge issues. They're not for us. Many of us, have, we think, what's the big deal? It's just food. It doesn't matter, does it? No, it does if you've been brought up all your life to believe this is how you honour God 
I come to your home, I say, yeah, I believe in God. I honor God. I've now joined this group, and we gather regularly to honor God. Excuse me, why I eat pig? In that moment, your conscience is offended. You cannot believe. You think, I'm unclean, and the message I'm giving you has no credibility. When we are working, so I, I hit all these kind of things as we travel into the Middle East. It's less of an issue here, but a couple of quick stories. Um, none of this is in any order. I'm sorry about that. I thought I had a better chance of this being in some kind of order after last week. I had a good excuse last week. I could say to South, I don't know what you're going to get this morning because this is only just thrown together. Um, some of our churches in Pakistan, you will go in and you'll find men and women sitting separately. And you think, hang on, Andy, what, what about grace? What about law? Isn't that, aren't you just enforcing the cultural oppression and all of this kind of stuff of women having to sit separate from the men? No, it's a purity issue. One of the things behind that cultural separation is an issue of purity. Older couple can sit together, marry couple, but young men and young women sit separately. Now, the church, certainly those who have been around a while in the church, they've heard teaching, they understand this, but the wider community doesn't, and the wider community is full of people who don't like the church. And so if they look at the church and say, let's see, you've got this Western gospel, which of course it isn't, but they think it is, and you're doing just what they do in the West. You've got men and women sitting close. Some of those Pakistani people, actually in this city, if they were coming here on a Sunday, they would say there's no way this is a God-honoring community. Look at you, sitting together. Okay, I'll let it be that some, some of you are married, that's okay, but some of you aren't married and you're sitting next to men. And men are sitting next to women. And it's an issue of purity. Now we know the outward doesn't mean anything. And you can do the outward, but what's in here... Uh, is what matters. That's what Jesus accused people of. said, on the outside, you're white, you're pure. Inside, there's death. Jesus hit it head on. But for a church to be accepted, or at least allowed to exist, doing things that are going to cause offense and are going to actually stop the gospel, you don't do it overnight. Knowing that our church in the city is totally different. Men and women sitting separately, it's different partly because it's less of a cultural issue. And the church has been going longer, and they've taught for ages. It's not just something you do overnight. Can you imagine, oh, we're starting a new church, men, women all sit together, it's fine. The women wouldn't come anywhere near it. Some of the men wouldn't either. Because they've been brought up that to honour God is purity and separation. Is this, you're making some sense. I know I'm going to throw up loads of questions here, which I'm not going to answer today. Um, We can meet up in the week and talk about them. But we don't just go in and say, we have to separate out what's cultural from what's the pure gospel. And, do you remember Jesus said, the gospel's like a seed, the kingdom's like a seed. We often think that just talks about Jesus coming and starting a small community with a a few believers and it then grows and fills the earth. And it started as a seed. Yes, he's right. But every time you go to a new place, you plant a seed. Don't plant a tree. Don't go in and say, Here's the good news of Jesus, here's how we'll worship, here's how we'll meet, here's how we'll pray, and here's what church looks like, or here's what being in the family looks like. It's not that we don't discard those things, but you plant a seed and let the gospel, together with the Holy Spirit, work out what it's going to look like in that culture. Because there isn't, and this gets talked about a lot, gosh, you're getting stuff south didn't get last week, isn't this fun? Oh, that's going to take a long time. Let's be in the East, where time doesn't matter. Fantastic. So, um, are you joking? It's okay. Um, 
I'm talking about seed. I totally lost my train of thought now. In terms of what's that? Oh, yeah. So people will talk about, yeah, but isn't what we want Jesus' culture? Yeah, if you like. Middle Eastern Jewish culture. You can have that. Guys, do you want that? Because people kind of think, oh, yeah, you know, in the Bible, we want Jesus' culture, don't we? Or we want kingdom culture. There's no such thing as kingdom culture. There's no such thing as Jesus' culture. Jesus was a middle-aged person who lived in a very specific culture. Now, he challenged some of that big time. He didn't challenge all of it. And there's no such thing as a kingdom culture. The end of Revelation, what do we see? Every tribe, every color, every language. That's going to be a worship meeting. We're all going to be singing. John underlines it. Every tongue singing, worthy is the lamb. In, I would guess, thousands and thousands of languages and dialects. And he can understand. I don't know what's going on. Because the point he wants us to understand is every culture is redeemed, but is still there. So when we start saying, oh, I just want to have kingdom culture, please, there isn't one. There are kingdom values, kingdom truths, which need to live out in every culture. That's what we're looking for. And that's what's happening here. The gospel is being planted like a seed into a new culture in Antioch, or in Samaria, or into other cultures, as we see in the book of Acts. And that seed takes root. And you want the seed to grow and affect people's heart and conscience, which is why you don't go in and say, hey, you're a new believer, fantastic. Here's all these kind of foods you can now eat because Jesus died for you. You don't just flick a switch like that. You let the work of the Holy Spirit, the understanding of grace, grow in that culture and in those individuals' lives. Does that make some sense? And think about this. Has anyone got it all yet? It's like a seed in our lives. It's like a seed in our hearts. God doesn't come in. Some of you have heard me use this illustration before. Imagine a really messy, dark cupboard full of rubbish. Some of you thinking, gosh, have you been to my house? I did plan to clean it out this spring. It didn't happen. And, sh- and, and imagine that's our hearts. God doesn't come in and put the light on. So you believe in Jesus now. We'll take all this rubbish out. On goes the light. Clean this out. We'd freak. We wouldn't know where to begin. We wouldn't know where to start. We'd be overwhelmed by all the rubbish, attitudes, strongholds, lies we've told ourselves, bad habits, ways we treat people, thoughts we have automatically without thinking when someone offends us or someone at work annoys us. And if God had put a light on in one moment, so you believe in Jesus, you're welcome, son. You're welcome, daughter. You're now with me. Isn't that one? Oh, thank you so much. Now, about these things. Bing! We'd all freak. It's like a seed. Bit by bit, he shines the light in our hearts, in our lives. He says, what about this now? This lie that you're worthless. And you kind of sing the song that I love you, but you think that's everybody else. Let's, let's talk about this, shall we? All that stuff your mum used to say to all that stuff that you were told at school. Let's sort that one out. Getting better on that? Let's look at some of this anger stuff. Because the fruit of my spirit is gentleness. So let's deal with some of the anger. And one of the things is we can still do in our communities, we can still do with one another, even though we teach grace these days, is judge one another by what we think is a good standard for a believer in Jesus. And the church still does that. I'm not talking this church, the church still does that. And we can still do that. Say they're a Christian? How long have they been a believer? Gosh, you've seen what they do in their family? You've seen what happens with their kids? You've seen the places they go? You've seen the films they watch? How can they do that? doesn't mean we let it go. doesn't mean there aren't things that we should help and address with one another. But don't assume that the gospel's not working. God could be doing all kinds of things in their heart, that, and he's not touching that one yet. And do what Peter did. Look in the mirror first. If you want to start saying, what is God doing in our lives? So the gospel is like a seed. 
not just in the fact that it came with one person, Jesus, and then spread, but also that it comes to us and grows. And also when it goes into new communities, so some of our work in the Middle East or wherever the gospel goes. We don't come in and say, here's everything we've learned for thousands of years and we're going to plant it and this is what church looks like. No, we, of course, Jesus said make disciples. So of course you bring in issues, of course you teach, but you let scripture and the Holy Spirit do its work. Right, we need to land some of this. I haven't even got on to any of my points. All of that came out as we talked around the passage. A few things to learn from this as we do try and head for a finish. First one, why is this happening? So often when scholars and commentaries kind of look at this passage, open up all the doctrine and open up everything around grace, and, and of course that's important and it's there. I'll come back to it before we finish. But what we miss is the gospel isn't static. It keeps moving. The reason why this big meeting happens is because the gospel has gone to another community. And it's raising issues and raising challenges. And we're seeing this again and again through Acts. Let it come to us this morning. The gospel isn't static. It's meant to cross barriers. It's meant to go to other cultures. It's meant to go to people not like us. And that's what's happening in Acts. It's meant to go to people of other faiths. This is good news. Jesus has taken it. Other faiths who believe you just try hard. And if you try good enough, you get some karma. Maybe you'll come back a little bit better. Or faiths that say, well, if you obey the teachings of this prophet, or if you obey the writings in this book, or if you live like this, or those of no faith who say there is no hope. Jesus has come. This is good news. We now know a man from heaven, God himself, came and said, I will do this. I will open up the way. There isn't a burden. There isn't a yoke for you to carry anymore. I've done it. And every one is welcome. I remember Jonathan teaching from earlier the inclusivity of the gospel but the exclusivity too which is the only way in is Jesus. There is only one way. It's not that God came and said oh I'd love everybody and whatever they are uh, Buddha, Muhammad, doesn't matter. You, you can all come to me in the end. I like all these paths. No God did something even better than that. He said I'll open up the door and it's this. And what you come into is so stunning and so beautiful. You're adopted into a family. You're given the power of the Holy Spirit to help you to live. You're delivered from sickness. You're delivered from, from uh, strongholds and lies. Oh, it's so much better. But the only way in is Jesus. The gospel isn't static. Uh, but it causes challenges. And in this passage, they're fighting for the purity of the gospel. Because good-hearted people who also believe in Jesus saying, no, 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 that's the good news of Jesus, yes, but then there's all of this. And they're fighting for the purity of the gospel. And uh, we need to keep doing that. So it's less of an issue, as I said, 500 years uh, after Luther, you think, well, we understand grace now. Part of the, one of our values in our network of churches is remembering how Jesus has done it all. This is grace. But it's an ongoing battle. Um, I have the privilege of traveling some of those places where there are no churches, but some places there are churches um, they don't, they've forgotten grace. They think, yes, you come in through grace, Jesus died, but then after that, how much are you reading the word, how much are you praying, how much are you fasting, and particularly in some of the communities that are influenced by other religions where you have to outdo them. So some of the churches that we've been helping in, uh, in Pakistan, for example, you pray the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. And if you, some of you are thinking, yes, amen, let's get back to it, and let's have some decent hymns as well while we're at it, with some proper words and sing them once, not 15 times. <coughs> I'll come back to that. So, <laughs> you think, where are you going now, Andy? I don't know. So, 
Why are they doing that? Uh, talking with another guy working to another part of Pakistan with one of our groups of churches, and he's had to help the church stop reading the Ten Commandments every Sunday. And they talk to them. You don't just go in and say, oh, look, Jesus is taking care of this. No, he talks to them, understands. What's, why are they doing it? Well, because they're surrounded by Muslims who believe that the way is law and accuse the Christians of not having any law and dishonoring God and because they haven't understood grace. So if we're going to get you, church, to live, let me remind you of what the Ten Commandments say. So every Sunday they read them. And you think, surely everyone... No, they're, they're many, many places around the world haven't understood what Jesus won for us and what we live in. And you know in your life you need to keep fighting this battle. How many of you feel rubbish when it comes to worship on a Sunday because you think you've not worked, walked with God enough or you've not prayed enough or you fell out with someone? Now, if it's the Holy Spirit convicting you, well, tell God you're sorry and then worship abundantly because Jesus has taken care of it. So grace doesn't mean, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter I had a row. It doesn't matter things aren't good at home. Just worship, isn't it lovely? That's not grace. That's license. Grace is... This is wrong, but Jesus, your blood makes me clean, and it's done it. So I say I'm sorry, and I can worship. And I, that's grace. So we have to keep fighting for that individually, even today. So they were fighting in this passage for the purity of the gospel. They listened to God. They listened to testimony. They saw what the Holy Spirit was doing. They took advice from different leaders, and then they made their decision. All things that we could have opened up and talked about, but there's not time. There's too many people who wander around today, sadly, in all kinds of churches and settings saying, oh, God told me to do this, or this is how you enter into these promises, or this is uh, what God has given for my life, or this is where God wants me to live now. In this passage, you don't get any individual doing that. They talk with other leaders. They try to hear what God is saying. They looked at testimony. They looked at fruit. Any individuals walk around and say, oh, God's told me. I immediately feel suspicious enough. You think, well, did they tell other leaders? Did they tell your friends too? Were you willing to submit that to other friends? Were you willing to say, look, I think God may be telling me this, but can I have your counsel? Can you ask me about this? God didn't want us as individuals to make decisions on our own. We're meant to be in the body together. And this is a beautiful example of the body coming together and saying, gosh, we've got some huge challenges here. What do we believe? What do we think the gospel is? Well, let's hear God together. Let's pray together. Let's take testimony. Let's hear from other leaders, those who argue one position and those who argue the other, and then we'll find a way through and then we'll let everybody know. That's how you hear God. And it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on in this passage. And what it also means, it means humility. Because these people who had walked with God, walked with Jesus, some of them, not all of them, but some of the original disciples, they realized they didn't know everything. They didn't know everything that God was doing. Let's always be humble when it comes to what we know about God, when it comes to other teaching that we hear or other traditions from other churches. And let's be very, very suspicious saying, no, it's clear, this is what the Bible says. Now, like I said, with good study, with good resources, with good traditions, with listening from others, of course we want to teach clearly. This world would love it if we all said, well, it's up to you to read that passage and make up your own mind, but here's what I think. Sadly, that's happening in the church now more and more. It's just arbitrary. It's like democratic truth. Whichever truth you think is best, you can go with that one. So of course we can teach clearly. God's made himself known through the word and made himself most fully known through Jesus. But we need to approach that with humility. And that's what the apostles did. 
with humility and gentleness. And God seems to be done something new. We don't have a reference point for that from our tradition until Jesus came. So what is this telling us? So let's make sure as we continue to long for God to work in this city and meet people from other cultures or meet people from other traditions or even those who take the name of Jesus and we think, ah, do we agree? Humility. God says he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God says he lifts up the humble. The way to Jesus being known and received again in the church, being able to speak into society is not going to be through assertiveness, it's not going to be through power, but through humility and grace and living it out because that's what Jesus did. Let's just land this quickly and then we'll break. Some application. In this passage, (coughs) they're fighting for the gospel, they're fighting for grace. Are you in your life? Never lose grace. And following Jesus becomes a chore when it seems too hard to pray, too hard to read the word, too hard to get to meetings. Remember grace. Remember Jesus has done everything for you. Remember you don't have to work your way. Remember you don't have to pray your way. You don't have to study your way. It's grace. So for often now, this is an individual battle, particularly in our kind of churches, because this is stuff that we would teach. This is in our foundations and in our values, but it can still be an individual battle. Does that make sense? However... The battle they didn't face, but I think we do, is the gospel keeps going to other cultures. And looking through Acts, I know this has come up before, and I'm not going to let us off this Sunday. We're too white, too middle class, and don't represent the city of Birmingham. We've got to fight for the recovery of the gospel that takes it to other cultures. That's our battle. That's the church's battle in terms of churches like ours. Some are doing it. I know there'll be other churches that will look different from us. There's a battle in this passage for the pure gospel. I don't think that's our battle in our tradition, although we need to keep fighting individually to make sure we're enjoying grace, which means you smile, even though I said I'm going to finish and you're beginning to think, is he really? Yes, I am. Enjoy grace. Our battle is that church looks very, very different and communities look very, very different. These last two Sundays... Um, we spent with, after we'd done church, we spent with Muslim families, people we're beginning to know. I don't think they'll come here on a Sunday morning, one of them in particular. They wouldn't, they, if they were interested, my next invite wouldn't be here. It would freak them out for some of the reasons I've referred to. So what's church going to look like for them? It doesn't mean we'll never see Muslim background people worshipping. One of the families are Iranian. They were here on Easter Sunday. Um, no, they're still on their journey. I'm not sure how close they are but they wanted just to see it some people from some groups particularly Iranians would be more open to that kind of thing they love music they love poetry um, so they would get some of this but Muslims from another people group they would struggle men and women together they struggle with singing you don't sing in the mosque you bow and you wash some of you got your Bibles on the floor shame on you it's a holy book no it's not I bought it in the Christian bookshops not holy there are hundreds of them no, it's a holy book for another culture. So all of those things are things we need to explore together and think, what does church look like? When we pray for the good of the city, and we pray for Jesus' name to be made great, too often what we're praying is, is more people who look like us. This needs to change. And I know we're wanting it, and I know we're embracing that, but it means you and I are going to have to change. And the battle isn't so much for grace now, but the battle is for the gospel, to do what the gospel does and take grace to other cultures. And finally, it's a seed. How's the seed doing in your life? Is it growing? 
What fruit is it producing? Have you settled? You can think, well, I know Jesus now. No church. Yeah, there's one or two things which I know aren't good in my life. Now the kingdom grows into a huge tree. That applies to the church, but it applies to our lives. That we could see the kingdom of God working in our lives more and more. And let's, with God's grace, make sure that's continuing to grow in our lives. Let's pray.